When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. Everybody knows the storm is coming fast. The day will soon be here. When those who are caught unprepared will be Hello and welcome to Physical Attraction, the Teot Wauki specials, where we'll be examining the end of the world, one apocalypse at a time. And survive while there's people crying, people dying everywhere around. This is Physical Attraction, the show that usually explains physics one chat at line at a time. But on the side, we'll be exploring the end of the world, one apocalyptic scenario at a time. We're Ada Sisters, a podcast about technology and tech culture. Women in tech and everything in between. From the latest trending software and apps. To the best news about changing the landscape for women in STEM. We gather it up and discuss as only friends can. Join us, the Ada Sisters podcast. On iTunes, Stitcher and at adasisters.com. So today I'm going to be starting a special series of episodes that I've wanted to do probably since I was 13 years old and first had unrestricted access to Wikipedia. I guess we all remember those heady days, right? You'd start on a simple article about Henry VIII that you needed for your homework, and 14 hours later, with red eyes, you'd be reading about the principle of falsifiability in science, or some rare and bizarre languages, or micronations, which are amazingly fun to read about. Long live the glorious kingdom of SeaWorld. But one area I always came back to, time and time again, like a moth to a flame, was the end of the world. People say to me, lighten up, or they used to at any rate, but really, I'm perfectly light already. It's just very simple. Sometimes you feel like something is too specific or too mundane to be worthy of spending much time on. It's that classic moment when you find yourself engaging in small talk with someone you barely know. Maybe you're in a lift and obliged to chat to each other for as long as you're confined together in space. Maybe it goes along this kind of line. Them. I see they haven't fixed that chair. Me. Yes, I hope they fix that chair soon. It squeaks when you sit on it. Them. It's a health and safety hazard, really. Me. I'm always worried that it's going to collapse when I sit on it. Them. That probably wouldn't happen, but someone should come and fix it. Me. Do you know who's in charge of fixing it? Them. I'm not too sure, but I guess you could ask around. Me. I think I'll do that. Etc. Etc. Yes, I understand that chair dialogue has its place, and yes, I know that small talk isn't really about the content of what you're saying, but communicating the message, you're a human, and I validate you. Well done for being a human. We're both humans, aren't we? Yay! And it's not about what you're actually saying. But even so, wouldn't life be just a little bit better if some of these conversations got replaced with talking about something more interesting? Something that affects everyone? Something that you can have dramatic opinions about? Something that'll maybe kick off a little bit of imagination? Something like the end of the world as we know it? So, in classic clickbaity fashion, I wanted to produce a top ten list of potential apocalypses. And I'm going to rank them 
in the order of the threat posed. This is a tricky calculation that will include how probable I think the event is to happen, how dangerous it would be if it did happen, and other factors that I'll come up with on the fly. I'm going to describe what each apocalypse might look like, how we can avoid it if it's avoidable, and why I think it deserves that particular place on the list. Now, the important caveat is that I'm far, 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 far from an expert in any of these fields, even the ones that are fundamentally to do with physics. Because, unfortunately, we spent way too little time studying the end of the world in my degree, as we should have done. So if I get things wrong, it's just because I'm a huge fan, and you'll have to forgive me. And, as ever in this show, if you know more, let me know. If there's an apocalypse you think should be featured, then tell me about it, and I might recalculate my list. The final bit of housekeeping to point out is around the rather shaky definition of the end of the world as we know it, or Teotihuacan as I'm going to be pronouncing it. So I don't think, for an apocalyptic scenario, you need to satisfy particularly specific conditions. There are some apocalypses, like a massive gamma-ray burst in the nearby galaxy, or, for example, if all that rubbish about the LHC producing black holes was true, that could probably destroy the Earth, or render it completely incapable of hosting any life, you know, just wipe out the planet. Meanwhile, there are some apocalypses that aren't nearly as bad. For example, consider an electromagnetic pulse. People are kind of concerned that North Korea might develop the capacity to set off an electromagnetic pulse, maybe by detonating one of their nuclear weapons at high altitude in the atmosphere. At the moment, it's not considered a credible threat, partly because North Korea doesn't have the missiles to launch them over North America yet, but also what we know of nuclear weapons producing EMPs in the atmosphere is limited, but doesn't suggest that they'd be that powerful. At present, if you actually want to cause damage, you're probably better off dropping the nuclear bomb directly on the city, but let's not worry about too much. But maybe there could be an electromagnetic pulse that comes from a nearby region of outer space. There's all kinds of processes that can produce them. EMPs have the potential to damage or destroy electronic devices. For example, one of the ones generated on Earth did run through some power lines in Kazakhstan and cause the local power plant to catch fire. So you could imagine a huge apocalyptic EMP that would destroy or disable most electronic devices. This wouldn't kill everyone immediately. You imagine anyone not on life support or in an aeroplane would be okay, although millennials like myself would probably have nothing to live for without our smartphones. But the medium-term consequences probably would be quite apocalyptic. If every power plant failed overnight, and there was suddenly no electricity at the plugs, if every computer and television failed, you imagine that civilization might collapse. It would be the end of the world as we know it, because we'd no longer be able to rely on the technology that makes up the world as we know it, even though in some ways the Earth would be just as habitable as it was before. This is an Equal Opportunities Apocalypse series, so anything that messes with civilization enough that people would refer to it as the event afterwards is fine by me. Okay, without further ado, we're going to start our countdown. Number 10. Earthquakes. Let's talk about earthquakes. As we know, the Earth's crust is made up of tectonic plates, vast plates of rock that shift around due to convection and the motion of the fluid in the Earth's mantle. They, roughly speaking, join together at fault lines. But in reality, the plates can't slide past each other frictionlessly, and what tends to happen is that they catch on each other, stick for a while, with pressure building. So whatever predominant force is pushing them along is building up pressure and elastic strain energy. Then, eventually, it all becomes too much, and they slip dramatically, releasing all that built-up energy quickly, and causing vibrational waves to propagate, which we feel as earthquakes. For that reason, they occur predominantly around fault lines, like the San Andreas Fault that runs through California, 
and others in Japan, South America, and the Middle East. The Richter scale is actually one of the few examples of a logarithmic scale that most people are familiar with, but this comes up all the time in physics. It's a logarithm to base 10 scale. That means that a magnitude 9 earthquake is 10 times more powerful than a magnitude 8 earthquake. The Richter magnitude of an earthquake can be actually calculated as a ratio concerning the amplitude of the shaking or vibrations of the earthquake to the normal shaking or vibrations of the earth. But it wasn't always explicitly calculable. Its precursor, the Mercalli scale, was based pretty much on human reactions to the earthquake. So a 1 was barely noticeable, a 5 was enough to wake people up and break some windows, a 6 would frighten many, a 10 would destroy lots of structures, and when you get up to a 12, you can actually see the waves of the earthquake on the surface of the ground, and objects being thrown up into the air. Now although this scale might seem a bit woolly and less quantitative than the Richter scale, it's important to note that the Richter scale alone isn't really enough to tell you about the impact of the earthquake on humans. It depends on the depth at which the earthquake occurs. So for example, a 0.7 magnitude quake was put in Category 3, vibrations similar to a passing truck, when it occurred in California, because it was only 4 kilometres from the ground level. Meanwhile, a 4.5 magnitude quake, which as you can see is over a thousand times more powerful, was only a 1 on the Mercalli scale, because it occurred 165 kilometres down and was felt by nobody, even though the vibrations were much greater than the baseline. And of course, the Mercalli scale is biased against earthquakes that occur away from centres of population density. So the most powerful earthquake ever recorded to hit the UK was magnitude 6.1 in 1931, the Dogger Bank earthquake. But it occurred way off in the North Sea, and so it only ended up being a 3-4 to four on the Macaulay scale. Reportedly, some buildings were twisted up, and a head of a Madame Tussauds waxwork fell off, but there was no apocalyptic damage. For our purposes, we're going to need an earthquake that's very high in magnitude, and also easily a 12, or possibly an imaginary 13 or 14 on the Mercalli scale. The highest magnitude earthquake ever recorded, that's a matter of some debate. The lists often include estimate magnitudes for historical earthquakes based on the writings of the people at the time. But of course, they didn't have seismographs, so you have to take that with a grain of salt. Interestingly, one of the oldest ones you'll see reference to is the Sanriku earthquake, which occurred in 869 AD off the coast of Japan. They have to infer that this was around an 8.9 on the Richter scale via the written accounts. Here are those written accounts. On the 26th day of the 5th month, 9th of July, 869 AD, a large earthquake occurred in Mutsu province with some strange light in the sky. People shouted and cried, lay down and could not stand up. Some were killed by the collapsed houses, others by the landslides. Horses and cattle got surprised, madly rushed around and injured the others. Enormous buildings, warehouses, gates and walls were destroyed. Then the sea began roaring like a big thunderstorm. The sea surface suddenly rose up and the huge waves attacked the land. They raged like nightmares and immediately reached the city centre. The waves spread thousands of yards from the beach and we could not see how large the devastated area was. The fields and roads completely sank into the sea. About 1,000 people drowned in the waves because they failed to escape either offshore or uphill from the waves. The properties and crop seedlings were almost completely washed away. Now because this earthquake was accompanied by a tsunami, they could actually go through the deposits of that tsunami on the land and work out how far the flooding extended. That's the main measurement that was used to reconstruct the Richter magnitude of the earthquake. There have almost certainly been more powerful earthquakes in human history. Generally though, it's agreed that the most powerful recorded earthquake was the 1960 Valdiva earthquake in Chile, which was 9.3 to 9.5 on the Richter scale. I hadn't heard of this earthquake until I came to research the show, 
and the reason is essentially because other earthquakes have proved more fatal, if lower in magnitude. The Valdiva earthquake was actually triggered by a sequence of previous earthquakes, of magnitude 8 or so, that acted as a foreshock triggering the main earthquake. This was powerful enough to permanently distort the landscape in the region, and eyewitnesses reported seeing, due to the changing water table, water rising up through the soil. It triggered landslides, and a tsunami with waves up to 25 metres tall battering the Chilean coast. And, a rather grisly detail, to ward off future earthquakes, a local shaman in a coastal village ordered a human sacrifice. The victim was a five-year-old boy. Amazingly, the men involved were charged with murder but released from prison after just two years. This earthquake was especially bad in terms of magnitude, but it's nowhere near the costliest in terms of property damage. That was the earthquake and tsunami you probably remember from Japan in 2011. Or human life. That dubious honour goes to the Shanxi earthquake in 1556 in China. Chinese casualty figures from the imperial period are often sources of historical controversy, but hundreds of thousands of people certainly died in this earthquake. Magnitude 9.1-3 earthquakes in Japan in 2011 and in the Indian Ocean in 2004 loom large in the memory as amongst the most devastating and deadliest of recent times. And there are fears that a truly powerful earthquake, with a magnitude 9 or above, might one day strike a major population centre in Japan or California. But even smaller earthquakes that are placed in vulnerable spots like Haiti can cause massive disruption. Part of the issue is that so much of the infrastructure is destroyed that it's difficult to get help where it's needed. Predicting earthquakes is a very inexact science. Indeed, the 2011 Tohoku earthquake in Japan was predicted, and the public were warned, by around a minute. That's how difficult it is to say anything for certain. The issue arises because, although earthquakes are often preceded by increased seismic activity, just as often you get seismic activity that occurs and then dies away. It might look like there's one coming, but it's not necessarily true. And not all earthquakes are accompanied by foreshocks that are noticeable or beyond the norm. If you analyse the seismic patterns, you see that the little clusters of foreshocks that precede some major earthquakes occur far more regularly than those major earthquakes do. So ordering evacuation of civilians is a risky business. If you did it every time there was some increased, albeit low, likelihood of earthquake, it becomes ineffective, people just stop listening. It's very difficult to get first-hand data on earthquakes and seismology. You might imagine that it'd be possible to measure if all this elastic strain energy is really building up between two huge tectonic plates, but quite simply we've never sent probes down that far. The story of the deepest we've ever gone into the Earth's crust is a bit of a bizarre relic of the Cold War. Back when the US and the USSR were competing over everything, who could be the first into outer space, onto the moon, etc., the USSR decided, in a Guinness Book of World Records type way, to dig the deepest ever hole. Someone's got to dig the deepest hole, right? So they did. It's a hole called the Kola Superdeep Borehole. But if you ever a kid and you thought when you were digging on the beach that you might be able to dig through to Australia or China, there's no way, because this, the deepest hole ever, goes 123 kilometres into Earth's crust. Although, if you're a mafia type, it's no good for evidence disposal, because it's only 9 inches in diameter. You can't roll up your informant in a rug and shove him down a hole 9 inches in diameter. The issue is that the heat and pressure gets ridiculous down there in the Earth's crust. Their goal was 15 kilometres, but that would have been hot enough at 300 Celsius to melt the drill bit they were using. The project was shut down in 2006 due to lack of funding, and now? The world's deepest hole is just abandoned in the far northwest of Russia, near the Finnish border. Which is sad, 
and it just goes to show how far we are from having perfect measurements, because the distance to the centre of the Earth is 6,400 kilometres, and we've travelled a mere 12.3 kilometres of that distance, in one location. Pretty much every major attempt at earthquake prediction has been met by scepticism or failure. In the 1970s, people thought that the forthcoming computer revolution would mean that we'd be able to predict them, but people are far less certain now that it even can be achieved. This does come after a number of high-profile failures, and a few cases where people had retroactively claimed that they'd managed to predict earthquakes after they occurred, which is a little bit sketchy. The issue with these cases is that people have an algorithm based on foreshocks and seismic activity. An earthquake happens, and it's consistent with when the algorithm said an earthquake was likely to happen. So if you take that fact in isolation, it seems like a prediction. But this discounts all the false positives, all the times the algorithm predicts earthquakes that fail to materialise. Even if we could accurately measure the strain build-up in areas under the Earth's crust, there's still a degree of randomness to the event itself. A foreshock might trigger a bigger earthquake, or it might not. A certain amount of strain energy might lead to an earthquake, or it might not. The actual process that triggers them appears to be stochastic, random. So all we'll ever be able to do, really, is make probabilistic statements. And that's fine. Anyone who phrases a prediction about the future not in terms of probabilistic statements must have access to some knowledge that the rest of us don't. The difference is when probabilistic statements are useful and give you new information, and when they're almost indistinguishable from the noise. So why is it that people say that, for example, San Francisco is due a big one, or that there should be an earthquake every 20,000 years in such and such a place? This is the distinction between prediction, which refers to a specific event, and forecasting, which refers to the distribution of events overall. And it actually turns out that most earthquake regions obey a rather beautiful law. If you take the logarithm of the earthquake power, which, as we mentioned, is the earthquake magnitude, and plot against the logarithm of the frequency, you get a straight line in most cases to pretty good agreement. In other words, by measuring the frequency of small, low-power earthquakes in a region, you can get an estimate for the average frequency of the big earthquakes. It might tell you that a magnitude 7 earthquake should occur every 100 years, or a magnitude 9 every 10,000 years on average. But just because you've waited 10,000 years since the last one, doesn't mean that there's one due necessarily. It's just a statement about the average frequency at which things occur. If you waited a billion years and counted them all up, you'll find that the average gap between those earthquakes was 10,000 years, in the same way as flipping a coin will give you 50-50 heads and tails if you do it enough times. But that doesn't mean that you couldn't have 100,000 years with no earthquakes at all, just like you can get 10 heads in a row without violating the neutrality of the coin. We can make statements about places that are likely to have earthquakes, and how often earthquakes of a certain size are likely to occur, but we can't make predictions. So what about the end of the world? Well, the real reason that earthquakes are number 10 on my list is that while they can be devastating, and there is going to be a big one fairly soon, they tend to be locally devastating. And there seem to be limits to how powerful an earthquake can reasonably be. For example, a magnitude 12 earthquake on the Richter scale would require a fault line bigger than the entire circumference of the Earth. Such a thing doesn't exist, it can't happen. And in fact, most researchers think that the limit is lower, maybe around a 9.6 to a 10. The reasoning behind this is simple. There's a limit to how much pressure the rocks can be under before they simply break. That's what earthquakes are, a pressure release valve. And the amount of pressure that can build up depends on the fault line, the width and the size of the slip that can occur. And these are things we can measure. 
we can analyse the fault lines and predict the maximum magnitude of earthquake that they might support. So the San Andreas Fault is unlikely to unleash an earthquake of magnitude greater than 8.6, and there aren't many fault lines that are large enough to produce an earthquake of 9.6 to 10. The Cascadia Fault Line in the Pacific Northwest, which is fairly close to Seattle, is more likely to support an earthquake of magnitude 9. One occurred in 1700, and by the same logic we talked about before, they're predicted to occur once on average every 243 years. There's a rather famous Pulitzer Prize-winning New Yorker article about the consequences of such a disaster, which the Pacific Northwest is far less prepared for than the San Andreas earthquake fault area, because the fault line is less famous. Here's a quote from that brilliant article by Catherine Schultz. Quote, The Pacific Northwest has no early warning system. When the Cascadia earthquake begins, there will be, instead, a cacophony of barking dogs and a long, suspended, what was that, moment before the surface waves arrive. Surface waves are slower, lower frequency waves that move the ground up and down and side to side, the shaking starting in earnest. Soon after that shaking begins, the electrical grid will fail, likely everywhere west of the Cascades, and possibly well beyond. If it happens at night, the ensuing catastrophe will unfold in darkness. In theory, those who are at home when it hits should be safest. It's easy and relatively inexpensive to seismically safeguard a private dwelling. But, lulled into nonchalance by their seemingly benign environment, most people in the Pacific Northwest have not done so. That nonchalance will shatter instantly. So will everything made of glass. Refrigerators will walk out of kitchens, unplugging themselves and toppling over. Water heaters will fall and smash interior gas lines. Houses that are not bolted to their foundations will slide off. Or rather, they will stay put, obeying inertia, while the foundations, together with the rest of the Northwest, jolt westward. Unmoored on the undulating ground, the homes will begin to collapse. End quote. This sounds terrifying, but, as horrible as it would be, even this is starting to strain at the upper limits, and it's not yet a global catastrophe. We don't know of any scenarios that would allow the rock to magically withstand enough strain to build up the energy release into a magnitude 10 or 11 earthquake, without releasing it via a smaller earthquake first. As far as we know, it can't happen. For a truly apocalyptic scenario, one would have to imagine lots of earthquakes simultaneously occurring along all of the fault lines in very quick succession, prompting a massive distribution of tidal waves that would crash onto the cities of the world. But the reality, again, doesn't favour the science here. The reality is that the Earth is made of very solid, very inelastic rock. The vibrations that travel through it can only propagate so far before they lose all of their energy and dissipate. So earthquakes might be able to trigger aftershocks for fault lines within a few hundred miles of the original location. But it seems unlikely that, say, a really powerful earthquake in Chile could have a reasonably large effect on the fault line in Japan. It's too far away. The vibrations dissipate in the rock. Without that kind of long-distance influence, the really apocalyptic scenario would have to be several magnitude 9.5 earthquakes occurring together, practically by coincidence. And that seems really, really unlikely. At least, it couldn't happen with the plate tectonics that we know at the moment. What we know of the Earth's core and mantle is limited, however. I'm sure seismologists and geologists could come up with a catastrophic, if unlikely, scenario where entire plates suddenly move due to a massive shift in the currents of the Earth's mantle. But it would be unlike anything we've ever seen, anything we ever have evidence for. However, one of the more recent deadly earthquakes has illustrated that in a globalised world, you can have chains of events that might be more deadly than the initial earthquake itself. I'm talking, of course, about the Fukushima power plant meltdown 
that had the world on edge back in 2011. I remember following it live on the news, as I'm sure many of you do. The efforts to inundate the reactor core with salt water, and worrying about all those brave first responders getting irradiated, and the idea that, you never know, something catastrophic could occur at any minute. But if your scenario for earthquakes causing the end of the world relies on them triggering something else, like accidentally causing a nuclear meltdown, then it's debatable whether that's really an argument for us to be afraid of earthquakes, or for us to be afraid of putting nuclear power plants on top of earthquakes. And even if Fukushima had somehow detonated, the effects would still hardly be in the realm of the kind of apocalypse we're looking for. So for that reason, earthquakes. They're quite common compared to some of the other scenarios, but it's very difficult to see how they could end civilization by themselves, so they won't cause me to lose as much sleep as the next nine entries. Thanks for listening to this Teot Rauki episode of Physical Attraction. As ever, you can follow us on Twitter at PhysicsPod. If you give us any questions, then I'll be sure to answer them. Email us at physicspod at outlook.com. And anything you want to know about the end of the world, any scenarios you think should be on the list, I'd be happy to hear them. Until then, stay safe. You better make some preparations. There's no time for hesitations. Compile a list of tips. Our theme music is Get Ready for the Apocalypse by Astrometrics. <laughs> <laughs>